The IRS faces a $20 billion cut to its 10-year modernization fund, part of the tentative agreement to raise the federal debt ceiling and avoid default. Now, the IRS has already outlined plans to spend that $80 billion it was supposed to get under the Inflation Reduction Act. White House officials say the cuts to IRS spending wouldn't require the IRS to scale back its short-term modernizing and that the agency may ask Congress for more multi-year funds by the end of the decade anyway. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has more. And Jory, this is all kind of money they never had in the first place because it hasn't been appropriated yet. So there's a cut to an anticipated increase. That $20 billion trimmed off. Where does the agreement say that money will actually end up? So that money is going elsewhere within the federal government. White House officials told reporters that this money would be repurposed. $10 billion of it in fiscal 2024 would be repurposed uh, elsewhere within the appropriations process for that fiscal year. And then in fiscal 2025, another $10 billion would be repurposed for non-defense priorities elsewhere within government. This really doesn't have a material impact on the IRS in terms of its spending of that remaining $60 billion. These are multi-year no year funds for the IRS. And so this doesn't mean that in FY 2024 or 2025, they don't have access to any of those funds. It's all drawing from this big pool in the end. Sure. So for their modernization plans, they already have, as you pointed out, issued their plans and how they wanted to use the money. So they haven't gotten to the end of the money yet, let's say. So they still have the beginning of the money. So is there any effect of this on their short term plans? The White House doesn't expect that in the short term, the IRS will need to change its plans at all, really. Uh, What they said is that there was probably a chance the IRS would need to come back anyway to any future administration down the line at the end of that decade and possibly come up with more money to finish whatever projects were in the works past that $80 billion. And so now that So now that we're in a different reality, uh, they're going to use what they can for the $60 billion. That includes significant hiring. The IRS said that it's going to, in the upcoming years through the end of fiscal 2024, hire 20,000 new employees. That focus on that hiring is going to be in terms of taxpayer experience personnel as well as enforcement. As far as those, you know, longer term visions for what the IRS can do with this money, you know, we're also looking at a modernization of the individual master file and the IRS moving on to its own direct e-file system that would compete with the turbo taxes of the world. I think they should get a contractor to fix the master file for free and then get 10 years of no taxes or something might be more effective than the billions they've already spent on that crazy database. Anyway, now this bill, this which again is not law yet as we speak, we've got a few more days to go to see if it is law, but that does put caps on spending levels for the rest of the government, correct? It feels a little bit like sequestration. It does. What this deal, which is not yet law yet, what it would entail is a freeze of non-defense discretionary funding for fiscal 2024. White House officials say that would basically feel like a continuing resolution for most agencies there. And for fiscal 2025, it would cap growth of non-defense discretionary spending to 1%. Now, Veterans Affairs got special treatment, as it often does under budget impasses. Somehow veterans, nobody seems to argue so much about they should have What about Veterans Affairs Department spending under the deal? Right. Yeah. Well, under the earlier deal, the VA did stand to lose uh, quite a bit of uh, jobs and personnel uh, under a deal that would have capped spending at 
FY2022 levels, uh, but that is not the deal that we're talking about here. The deal would fully fund the VA's toxic exposure fund at levels proposed by the Biden administration for the next two years. That would be $20 billion in FY2024 and $21.5 billion in 2025. All right. And uh, I know that you spent the Memorial Day weekend, like so many people in Washington, Maybe you got a cook out in, but you still had to read that 99-page bill, which, you know, pretty small by some of the standards Congress has had for its bills in recent years. What else did you find in there? Yeah, 99 pages is quaint by some of these bill standards. What also is part of this deal is a rescission of most of the remaining COVID-19 emergency funds that are out there. That's to the tune of about $30 billion. That's not all of the money that's out there. There's about $5 billion that's going to remain intact for agencies to research next generation COVID-19 vaccines. Some of that money is within the VA itself. They plan to keep that just, they budgeted that as part of their current FY 2023 operations. That's about $2 billion. All right. And so default then would be avoided when this becomes law, presumably, and the Senate will vote on it as far as we can tell by the end of the week. Presumably, and they would have to vote on it by the end of the week to avert this uh, unprecedented government default. What the Treasury Department says is that they would need that deal to materialize by June 5th. That is the latest date of them figuring out how much revenue is still on hand to pay debts as they're scheduled. They've gone back on that date a couple times, but they have checked the couch cushions, found a couple billion here and there. And so June 5th is the final date that they would be able to keep paying the government's debts. And Jory, before we let you go, I wanted to return to the IRS that we talked about at the top here. And Danny Werfel, the commissioner of several months now, I guess, also, besides having a spending plan for modernization, had a workforce plan that spanned 10 years. And does that look like that'll stay intact, do you think, under this deal? Well, there's a very good chance that they will need to go back and modify that. Commissioner Werfel said that beyond the FY 2024 hiring plans, they were going to come up in a matter of weeks, a plan that would look at the IRS's hiring needs across the decade. Now, given that they are about to lose about a quarter of this proposed funding for modernization, uh, it would be hard to believe that that would be the same vision for the workforce without those funds. All right. So all depends on what happens through the week and through the weekend. And we'll just find out. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a... um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. 
Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, and so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do 
other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, I the way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs>
and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.